0: Good morning, my brothers and sisters. It's a lot nicer than what Matt Melvin said to me in the parking lot. He said, the prodigal son returns. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coming here is like coming home to the mom and dad's house for the holidays with you guys. So a lot of great memories. It feels so comfortable so many wonderful people. So thank you for your support and your prayers, your encouragement of Stacy and I. We miss you so much, we love you. Uh, So grateful for this partnership in the gospel that we still get to have with South Shore Baptist Church. And uh, it's a privilege to uh, serve you all by coming around what's so central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and that's the Word of God. And so, I invite you now to open up to Psalm 103. Psalm 103, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Psalms are right in the middle, so it's easy to find them. Psalm 103, the big number there would be the chapter number. Psalm 103, right in the middle of your Bible. Well, I don't have to tell you that these days, it's not difficult to find burdens to place on our hearts or problems to fill up our minds. It seems like everywhere we turn, there's someone shouting out yet another reason to be suspicious and skeptical and sad, and it can be hard to find relief. But even when we, you know, turn off our TVs or close down social media or lock ourselves in our home, it can still be hard to find relief from the noise because we talk to ourselves, that we are in a conversation all day with ourselves, typically about our problems, our fears, our anxieties. And few things will silence our praise for God and deflate our joy in the Lord like an around-the-clock conversation with yourself about your problems. We were not created to meditate on our problems and to carry our burdens. That we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so praise is the very purpose of our existence and it's the fuel of our soul. And without it, our our hearts will sink and our souls will run dry and we will have no strength to praise the Lord and to follow Him. And so if we're not extra careful in these difficult days, then the very purpose for our existence will get crowded out by the noise in our head. And so... We need to change the conversation with ourselves. You need to have a different conversation with yourself. And that's what this psalm is about. And What I hope that you take to heart this morning from this sermon is that you kindle your praise for God by reminding yourself of his incomparably great love And in this psalm, we see three expanding views of God's love that are meant to stir our souls to praise. In the first part of the psalm, it starts close. We talk about the Lord's personal love. But then it expands to look at God's love for all of His people. And then finally expands even further to include all of creation, as all of creation and the angels erupt in praise. To God well let's read Psalm 103 would you follow with me in your Bible my soul bless the Lord and all that is within me bless his holy name my soul bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits he forgives all of your iniquity he heals all your diseases he redeems your life from the pit He crowns you with faithful love and compassion and satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him, and his righteousness towards the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You see that there in the subscripts, that this psalm is written by David. And, and we can tell from the tone of the psalm, we don't know exactly what was going on in his life, but we can tell from the tone that it's written during a time in David's life when his heart was stirred by God's love, that his affections were stoked because of God's mercy for him. And that's what God wants for you this morning. You want your heart stirred because of his love, and He you wants your hearts full of praise because of his mercy. But before we get into the details of the passage, I do just wanna step back for a moment and just say a few opening words about love because it shows up four times in the Psalm. And uh, you'll notice um, that it it shows up there in uh, verse four, and it's called God's faithful love. And that's how it's translated throughout the Psalm. And given that that love is such a, a misused and misunderstood word today, we should should use some time up front in the beginning of this sermon just to define it. What does David mean by this idea of faithful love? The Hebrew word here is hesed, and this is one of those deep and rich words of the Bible that you really should know, uh, that hesed it it doesn't carry over simply into English. And so different Bible translations, they they translate it differently to, to capture the richness of the word. And so sometimes it's translated loyal love or loving kindness or steadfast love. See here that it's translated faithful love. And what all of these translations are trying to capture is that this is God's unique, committed, merciful love for his covenant people that opens up the floodgates of his eternal kindness and goodness towards them. It's a big, big word and a big idea. And that's what this psalm is about. We don't have time this morning to, to talk about what the Bible, how the Bible develops this idea. But if we were to look at the Bible's teaching, we would be able to, be, we'd be able to say this about hesed. That this is God's love for all of those who are united to Christ. And there are some parts of the Old Testament where the the shadow of Jesus in the new covenant is so near to the reality that you forget what part of the Bible you're in. And Psalm 103 is one of those parts of the Old Testament. And so just keep that understanding of God's covenant love in the background of your mind as we work through the details of the sermon and uh, of the passage rather. And you'll notice there in the first five verses, the focus is on the Lord's personal love, the Lord's personal love. And this is the first view of God's love that's meant to stir our souls to praise. Notice how it starts off. It says, my soul bless the Lord. And then look how the psalm ends. Look at the last line of the psalm. It's the same line, my soul bless the Lord. So it's bookended by this call to his soul to bless the Lord. He's talking to himself. To bless the Lord, it's another way of saying praise the Lord. It's to recall and remember the goodness of God and the greatness of God and then to respond with praise. And that's what David does throughout the psalm. He talks to himself, he's urging his soul and all that is within him to bless the Lord. Look at verse one again. My soul bless the Lord and all that is within me bless his holy name. My soul bless the Lord and do not forget his benefits. And so reading the psalm, it's like watching geysers of praise erupt through the surface of David's soul up to God. It's these explosions of praise as he brings to mind all of these, what he calls, benefits. All of God's goodness to him, who God is to him and what God has done for him. He does not want his soul to forget. He's going to be stubborn and not let his soul forget all these benefits. The implication here is that we need to carve out time in our lives regularly to remind ourselves what God has done for us and who God is. Because a forgetful soul is a dry soul. That we were created to praise God. That we are responsible for our praise. Responsible to cultivate and nourish and strengthen a heart of praise to rejoice in the Lord always. I wonder if you were able to record a week's worth of conversation with yourself, what dominant themes might emerge? You know, often we remain passive and we let our circumstances dictate the direction of our conversation with ourselves. And if we remain passive, it will just suck all the life out of our soul. We live in a fallen world, we are sinful. We need to be intentional and active in cultivating a heart of praise. For God is worthy and it's for your own good. And that's what David does starting in verse three. He is gonna tell us now what these benefits are that he does not want to forget. He's gonna remind himself of these things. And this is what we ought to remind ourselves of as well. And he starts in verse three with the first step into the ocean of God's mercy and covenant blessing. And that's the forgiveness of our sin. Look at verse three. He forgives all of your iniquity and heals all of your diseases. So he, he forgives our sin and he heals our diseases. Uh, now, God certainly is healing. God heals still today. And if you're sick or in pain, it is appropriate and right that you would ask God to heal you. But oftentimes, especially in the Psalms, sin is called a disease. And when the forgiveness of sin and the healing of disease are on parallel tracks in a Psalm, it's often two ways of saying the same thing. And so what David is is saying here, he's reminding himself that God has not only blotted out his sins, but he's also curing his inward corruption. He's not only forgiving his sin, but he's actually fixing his sinful heart. In verse four, he's remembering these other benefits. He says, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love. There's our word hesed. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. That David reminds himself that the Lord has reached down with a hand of mercy into the pit and has brought him out. He's redeemed him from death's bondage, which is the penalty for our sins. And not only has he brought him out of the pit, but he's crowned him with love and mercy, compassionate, compassion and faithful love. That what surrounds David's head, as it were, is God's faithful love to him and his compassion. In verse 5, he continues to talk about these Benefits and to remind his soul of God's kindness to him. He says, He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Uh, The eagle was a symbol for youthful stamina and strength and vitality. And so he's reminding himself that God continually satisfies him with good so that his, he remains spiritually strong and able to stand and to face the difficult things in his life. And so David's just pausing. He's stopping and just thinking about it, rolling around in his mind and recalling this comprehensive list of how good God has been to him. And you notice how personal it is that David is not afraid to make this so personal. I mean, here's a man who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and he's brought that near to his soul. You remember a time in your life when your heart was this full of praise? When, you know, the Lord's nearness was unusually experienced in your life? Maybe it was at your conversion, or at a time when the Lord drew near to you and in great weakness or, or suffering or grief. What pours out of the soul in those moments? And isn't it what we see in verses three to five? Delight in his redemption and awe because of his grace and gratitude for his forgiveness. Just gladness and all the goodness that he brings into our lives, that he gives us the strength to keep going. That's the good stuff of life. I'll tell you what doesn't come out of our souls when they're filled up with praise to God. An obsession with our problems. There's no room in the soul for that. It's been too filled up with how good God is. what do all the men and women who do great things for God have in common? Education? No. Charisma? Not always. Uh, Favorable, easy circumstances? Rarely. A, A natural moral bent that makes them, you know, more inclined to love God? Absolutely not. Here's what they all have in common. They know that they are a great sinner, but Jesus Christ is a greater savior. And they, they just marvel at the fact that God himself has taken the initiative to redeem them and to remove every barrier between him and, in order to pour out his love upon them. And they just feed their souls with that more and more. They'd lean on it more and press it into their souls deeper. And so they know strength and weakness. And they can praise the Lord even when life isn't breaking their way. And they know comfort in grief. And they might fall down and knock their head and scrape their knee and get a bloody lip but they don't stay down, they get back up again, and they celebrate with Paul that I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's personal. Do you want that? then remind yourself of God's love for you and fight to remember, especially when you don't feel like it. So David stirs his soul to praise by reminding himself of God's personal love for him. But it doesn't stop there. His view of the Lord's love now expands to look at how God's love is for all of his people. And this next section, it's the largest section of the psalm from verse 6 to 18, but we can break it up into three parts. We will look at God's redeeming love, God's merciful love, and God's everlasting love. And throughout these three sections here, we'll see that God is so unlike us and much better than we think. First, let's look at God's redeeming love. Look at there at verse 6. It reads, uh, the Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He reveals His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. So what David's doing in these verses, he's reminding himself of what God did for His people in the Exodus. That in the Exodus, God revealed both His saving action, His deeds, but God also revealed His gracious character. So in verses 6 to 7, we see God's actions as He rescued His people out of slavery in Egypt. But then in verse 8, we see that quote from Exodus 34, one of the big moments of the Old Testament, when God reveals His name, His character, who He is. You know, you'll remember if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, that God had rescued his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt through great acts and great signs and wonders and brought them through the Red Sea to the other side and brought them to Mount Sinai, where he made a covenant with them to bless them in the land that he had promised. And, and what happened when God was up on Mount Sinai writing out the Ten Commandments with his finger? You remember what happened? Where were the Israelites? At the bottom of the mountain, carving out the golden calf. But it's in the context of one of the worst sins in the history of the people of Israel that God revealed his gracious character. And so against the backdrop of human sinfulness, God's character shines so brightly in the book of Exodus. And that's what David's bringing to mind here. And his character still shines so brightly against the backdrop of human sinfulness. He is so unlike us and better than we think. I wonder how you would finish that sentence in verse eight. The Lord is. If you had a fill in the blank, you could say four things about God. I wonder what you would write there. I wonder what you would put there immediately after you had just failed God, like the Israelites. This is what the Lord said about Himself. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. We live in a time in our country Where people are so quick to get angry and so slow to mercy. A time when people expend so much energy sharpening their spears rather than cultivating compassion. When people seem more interested in making enemies than friends and turn over every possible rock to find more reasons to accuse. How unlike God we are. And yet, the one who sees sin most clearly is slowest to anger and abounding in love. Oh, that we would be like him in this day of anger and hate. In the next verses, what David's going to do is he's going to take God's character from verse 8, and he's going to show how that works itself out practically in, the, in his relationship with his people. And so we shift from God's redeeming love to God's merciful love. We see how God's mercy there is developed in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It says, he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquity. imagine for a moment that your sins were broadcast to the world, and those things that we all try to keep hidden and secret were shown to everyone. When the Facebook you was eliminated and the real you was all that everyone could see. I don't think that any of us would have a shot at forgiveness or compassion or mercy. And yet God, who sees every single thing that we have done, he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve his anger, which he has every right to give as our righteous creator, but instead he gives us the opposite. That's mercy. He removes our sins from his sight, and he remembers them no more. Look at the next verses here in 11 and 12. Watch how David expresses the infinity of God's merciful love using poetic language. And we get two. We get a vertical image and we get a horizontal image. So why does God show mercy? Well, because of his immeasurably great love. Look at verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. In other words, you can't measure it. So great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. Did you ever think about that? That even if you spent your whole life, you couldn't measure the extent of God's love for you? Why doesn't God repay us according to our sins? Because he's removed them. Look at this next image in verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You have to wonder how that's possible. How can God, who is a righteous and just God, not repay us for our sins without compromising His justice? We want God to be just and holy, because if He is not, then crime really does pay. And everyone who is anxious and angry all the time, they're actually the same ones. But because God is just and holy, that's not true. That God does not take sin lightly. He doesn't take my sin lightly. He doesn't take your sin lightly. He doesn't turn a blind eye or sweep it under the rug or say, boys will be boys. God does not trivialize sin. He sends his son to die for it. And so God does not repay us for our sins because Jesus pays for them on the cross. That that Jesus takes away the sins of his people by taking them upon himself. And on the cross, our sin is condemned and judged and punished in him. And our guilt is buried with him in the grave that's how God removes our sins. You know, sometimes the awareness of our sin and our guilt, it, it, it can press in so close that it nearly chokes us. And we feel dirty and ashamed and even haunted sometimes by the things that we have said and done and thought. And in those moments, we think to ourselves, surely my Father in heaven regrets this adoption. He must be at the end of his fuse. His patience finally run thin, and his love finally grown cold, and his affection finally dried up. Brother, sister, child of God, never. Because of the cross. Your sins are removed from you to such an extent that it cannot even be measured. It's as far as the east is from the west. And so now the Father turns His back towards our sin, and He turns His face towards you in love and grace because you're united to His Son. And now the very affection and love that the Father has for the Son is yours by grace. He's better than we think. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I know that this church is glad that you're here. I do have a question for you and it comes from a place of concern. What are you going to do with your sin and your guilt? Jesus Christ is able and willing to save all those who come to him and trust that what he accomplished on the cross reconciles sinners to God. I know it's not flattering or easy to hear that you are a sinner who deserves God's judgment. But can't you trust a God this full of love to tell you the truth about yourself? Especially if he tells you so that you would flee to him for mercy. So we see God's mercy in verses 10 to 12 and now we shift to another great thing about God. We see his compassion in verse 13. Look at verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Like a good father is is moved with compassion by his child's weakness and frailty and suffering, so our Father in heaven is moved by ours. And we see in verse 14 why. Why he has all this compassion. For he knows what we are made of, remembering that we're dust. It's a reference to Genesis two and God makes Adam out of dust. But the Lord also knows that to dust we return because of, of the penalty of sin, because of the curse of sin. And so he knows that we are frail and finite and fleeting and weak. He knows that his redeemed are not yet what he will make them in glory. And so he shows compassion. If you feel your need deeply for God every single day because of your temptation and weakness and inability, you're on the right track. And those of you who feel impressive and capable, you have a lot of thinking to do. But those who feel weak and unable, the Lord says, I know. And I'm here to give you what you need to stand. Our weakness and frailty don't drive him away with a folded arms and a raised eyebrow, but it actually draws out his loving heart of compassion. He's better than we think. Hey dads, let's live with our kids in such a way so that when we tell them about the father in heaven when we tell them about his compassion it's easy for them to understand because they experience it from you we got an opportunity here guys let's not waste it so we've seen god's redeeming love for his people we've seen his merciful love Now let's look at the Lord's everlasting love, his eternal love for his people. David, what he does, he he continues to compare our finite and limited nature with God's infinite and boundless love. So not only are we like dust, but we're also like grass and like flowers. Look at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass, blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. You know, living in New England, I don't have to try very hard to make sense of these verses. You know, in the spring the grass is green and and lush, and the flowers are vibrant and beautiful. But after a few short months, they're all covered in snow, and its place is no longer known. And that's like our lives. They may pop for a moment with vibrancy in life but they're just so brief and the generations come and go and come and go and we all try to cling on to things in the hope that something we do will last after we're gone but nothing we do lasts forever not even our love in this life lasts forever it has a beginning and it has an end. A start and a finish. So, what do finite people bank on? What are we hoping? What do we stand on? What's gonna last? Verse 17. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear Him. It's God's immovable, unchangeable perseverant, covenant love for his beloved. That's what lasts. That's what we hope in. And you'll notice that the love is is from eternity to eternity. That before the foundation of the world, God had loved his people with a covenant-keeping love. And that love is made known to us and experienced in the present when The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and shows us what we need. He shows us our sin, and He shows us our need for Christ as our Savior, and He makes us alive with Christ. So it's from eternity past. This love is made known to us in the present, but then it's into eternity. It's from eternity to eternity. It just keeps going forever and ever which means that if you're a Christian, you will never grieve the end of God's love because it will never end. And and so what makes our lives matter and count is not anything in us or done by us, but what we receive from an infinite, eternal God. We see in Psalm 103, we see these three expanding views of God's love that are meant to stir our souls to praise and to give us joy in the Lord and strength to praise Him in hard times. And we've seen the Lord's personal love. We've seen the Lord's love for all of His people. And now we're going to see the Lord's love for His praise as it is uh, as it expands in this last view to include all of creation and we see here that god deserves all praise because he rules over all look at verse 19. it says the lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all." that's what our souls need to remember That the Lord, as the king of the universe, is worthy and deserving of all of creation's praise. And so that's how the psalm ends, with these exclamation points of praise as all of creation, even the angels, join in David's soul in praising this great God. Look at verse 20. Bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his commandments. Bless, Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. And so in this concluding section, we, we see the right response to the Lord's rule and the Lord's love. And it's praise and obedience. You notice there, the angels, they not only bless the Lord, but they also obey his commandments. And that's what David has been mentioning throughout the sermon, talking about those who fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is another way of just describing the people who believe God's promises and love Him and respect Him and revere Him and obey Him. And that's really the natural response for a person who has been filled to the brim with reminders of God's incomparably great love. They delight in the law of the Lord. And the Lord delights to pour out more love on those who keep His commandments. And so this is what the world needs from you right now. It needs Christians who refuse to let the noise of 2020 silence their praise. It, It needs Christians who refuse to let the weight of 2020 suffocate the very purpose for their existence which is to glorify our God and enjoy Him forever. It needs Christians who actually live like their Father rules in heaven over all, and Christians who Believe, really believe that Jesus has risen from the dead and has received all authority and with it honor and glory and blessing and has sent them out in that authority to make disciples. It needs Christians who will stop and pause and fill up their souls with how good God is. Will you do it? Father in heaven, what can we say to thank you for your love? Oh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the, how centering and it is and how much stability we receive when we see how big and great you are and that you are for us forever, because of Christ. And so, Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them strength in these days to praise you, that you would return to their souls a deep joy and satisfaction in your goodness, and that you would cause them to praise you and to delight in you, and that you would carry them for your own glory. In Jesus' name.